Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Partiers, it's Anna David here. How are you? I myself, I think I'm good. You know, it's been a, it's been an interesting, God, it's been an interesting 2014. Uh, more highs and lows than I had on drugs. I don't know about you guys, but I could use a little bit uh, more serenity. You know what I mean? Just in the in the day to day, big news coming down the pike. Lots of exciting things happening. Some hard stuff. Um, yeah, you know, it's amazing. You you sort of think that you um, you know, you're sort of you're in recovery. You you think you tell yourself you sort of got it together and then you just get hit with um, you know, a, a lot of emotions and a lot of information that your life is not exactly the way you want it to be. Anyway, I'm being vague and I'm not meaning to be vague. Um, if you have any desire to even know what I'm talking about, I, I kind of write extensively and obsessively about these things. So you can see on on After Party Chat um, a, a number of articles where I do some navel gazing on this and other topics. But yeah, life is weird. And even when you have uh, a lot of sobriety, that is, um, it, it doesn't get unweird in my experience. And, um, you know, this is the week we're in the, in the wake of hearing about the tragic loss of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And that is something that um, I get into with my guest, um, who is an amazing guy. This is like, the, this is the kind of guy superlatives were invented for. Um, his name is Rich Roll. Uh, he went to Stanford undergrad, Cornell Law School, um, you know, built this the high-powered law career and um, was an alcoholic, is an alcoholic, got sober. Then after, you know, sort of like living that dream, you know, getting it together, had the two DUIs, got sober, got the family, got the law career, uh, realized uh, when he was about to turn 40 that he was hopelessly out of shape and was like eating fast food and all that stuff that isn't even really food. And he decided to try to change his life in the way that he had uh, earlier uh, in terms of getting sober. And he took it, as alcoholics sometimes can, further than many would. And when I say he took it further, what I mean by that is that he has done, completed several Ultramans. Now, an Ultraman is like an Iron Man, but a lot freaking harder. It's a three-day, 320-mile thing that happens in Hawaii. So he did it once. You know, some of us might might do that once, maybe, and like, you know, hope not to die. He did it, and he uh, was the third fastest American in it. He finished the 11th place. I don't know how many people did it, but a lot, okay? Um... And, and then he just uh, became obsessed with um, 
being in the best possible shape he could. He's been named, you know, one of the 25 fittest men. He's been called, I've heard him called the fittest man alive, which is to say that I have the fittest man alive in here, in this very room where I'm now sitting alone. So lucky me. And the thing is, so he's somebody that I, I that I knew uh, from when I, you know, when I came around and got sober, he was one of the, you know, the stalwarts. He was around. He was somebody who was doing it already. And, um, and then he reached out to me a few years ago when he had a book coming out. Um, and he and I, you know, and, and, and when there's somebody you haven't talked to in, in a while and he reaches out to you and tells you he's got this thing going on and you Google him and it says that he's one of the world's fittest men, that gets... That caught my attention. And, you know, we reconnected over that. Um, and um, his book was phenomenally successful. And he has gone on to a, um, you know, he has a hit podcast. He has a, a blog. He sells products. Um, he advocates, you know, for himself. He, he eats, it's a solely plant-based diet. And um, he's a fascinating guy. And he, I, I bring him to you today, you guys, because I like to bring you fascinating people. So with that, I will give you the one and only Rich Roll. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God. I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? starting it by talking about all the things people do wrong as guests on this. Oh, as guests? Or <laughs> well, in like sobriety? Me, well, <laughs> in, in, life. in life. No, but, um, but yeah, I, so, so, Rich, hi. How's it going? Really good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I don't remember, when was the last time we saw you? It's been a really long time, I was trying to remember. I think the last time I saw you might have been years ago at was he- Heath Slane's Beach House, on 4th of July. You were with Peter... Peter, Peter M. Peter M. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know what's funny? Who I saw last night, by the way. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. He I, has a new haircut. He always has a new haircut. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of what you can count. Uh, you can't count on a lot with Peter M., but yeah. you can count on the new haircut. Yeah. Um, that's funny because that is my sole memory of talking to you was like, we talked... Because, okay, keep in mind, when I met you, I was, for a year, I was just in my haze Mm -hmm. of early sobriety. Nothing registered. There were tall men around. And, like, sometimes I knew their names, but mostly not. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And... And then I, t- I definitely remember that 4th of July because I remember we were, I didn't know whose house it was, but I remember I was hanging out with Peter and we were at the beach and then it was this party that was not on the beach. It was not on the beach, right, but we were on our kinda, roof. Yeah, yeah. And I remember we talked and I had never talked to you really. At no, like not before. really. I mean, I'd seen you around, um, but I just remember, I was like, oh, wow, she's like a real writer, you know, because I, I was sort it. of this closet aspiring writer. Oh, at the time, wow. And I was like she actually has like stuff going on and look, she's with Peter and he's going to develop her stuff into a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Looks can be deceiving. Although I will say that Peter, Peter did give me a, I did do a one screenwriting job for, um, that I got paid to do and that came through Peter. It all ended. Maybe that's what we talked about. Oh yeah. I was probably bragging incessantly. Uh I'm glad that I could pull the wool over your eyes. I know. So we haven't, we haven't seen each other in a while, but I feel intimately connected to you. Well, yes. Because when my book was getting ready to come out, I was like, 
I was baffled at what I, how I was supposed to manage right. the process of marketing my book and getting people interested in it. And I was like, who do I know that's written books? And I was like, Anna's written books. I haven't talked to her in ages. I don't know if she even remembers who I am, but I'm going to reach out to her. And you were you very, did. very helpful. You gave me some great input and advice. I did. I mean, I'm so negative. And you put me in touch with uh, Tyson Cornell, who's become a friend. Oh, great. He's He's such a good guy. Mm -hmm. Wait, I, so did I tell you, I said hire Tyson if you're smart. Is that? Yeah, I didn't end up hiring him um, for a variety of reasons, but but we became buddies and, and, you know, touch base. Such a good guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's very cool. But it's interesting because I definitely remember you reaching out to me and me going, oh my God, like I can't give this guy, this guy is so accomplished. I don't, I don't have anything to offer. And, and I'm so negative about book publishing. I'm even more negative now. Yeah, but that's, that's good information to know. Like here's what to avoid. Here's what you can expect and not expect. Because I thought, um, I'm like, oh, my, I have, um, I have this book coming out and it's with a major publishing house and they're just going to send me my itinerary of all the places where I'm going to travel right, right, and talk right. about my book and they're going to arrange everything. And, right. and you were like, not so fast. And, and, and sure enough, I mean, I had a pretty charmed experience with my publisher and, but you know, yeah. the, the marketing really falls on you as a, as the writer to make it happen. And you made that very clear to me. And I, and I, you know, I you took it intuited and, you that. Like, and you're like, and I'm going like, to go on Sunday. Well, I mean, I worked as hard on marketing it probably harder than I did on writing the book. And yeah. I think that's what most writers don't realize. Like you've got to cultivate your own audience. You've got to make them interested. And you know, all of that is really on you. It's not, you can't, you can't dispatch that to somebody else. But also in terms of your, you know, sort of good experience, you had something to market that was fascinating most people don't most people have a book come out and it's you know what i mean so imagine not having all that material i mean that's that's where but you know as well as i do that when you're writing especially something that's memoir oriented you have those those uh you know shame spiral moments of thinking who could possibly be interested in this drivel that i'm putting down on paper you know well my life is a series of shame spirals (laughs) so you don't need to tell me but yours but the, the nice thing about yours is it's inarguably interesting when only a few people um, have had this experience when you're the only person and when you know it's motivating to a whole lot of people, right? But I didn't know that at the time. You didn't? No, I didn't know. I didn't know if anybody would be interested in the book. And the, the book's gone on to be very successful, and I couldn't be happier about that. But, but certainly, you know, I'm I'm not. I'm not wired to be naturally self-confident. My default position is self-loathing and, and self-defeatist and all of those things. So, you know, sort of combating that and, and trying to overcome that is, that's the challenge, the right? That's the challenge of recovery. I know it's my, I know that's true, but I mean, yeah, but amazing. So you can be one of, you know, the world's fittest man and, and be grappling yes. with, you know. And to, to be clear, not that I actually believe that I am or was, but that definitely helps sell books. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll take it. It was okay. I have these facts in front of me. You placed 11th place in your very first Ultraman, Mm -hmm. making you the third fastest American and the second fastest swimmer. And it was a three day, 320 mile situation, which you've now done many times. Yeah, I've done a couple times now. How many? It's like a really long triathlon. People. Who who are listening who don't know what that is? um, You probably know what an Ironman is. An Ironman is. A 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and a, and a marathon all in one day. And Ultraman is a race that is held every year, Ultraman World Championships in Hawaii. 
and it's um it's essentially a little over twice that distance but you do it over three days and you circumnavigate the big island of hawaii so i've done that race a couple times and literally I've twice done, is that what you mean you, what's that is a couple times you've, you've done it twice i did it in 2008 and then i did it in 2009 and i got sixth in that race and then i went back in 2011 um, and I ended up DNFing. I, I had a respiratory infection. What's I DNFing like, means mean? Means uh, I had to stop in the middle of the race and okay. pulled out. Yeah, because okay. I was like coughing up blood. <laughs> right, right, right. But uh, but yeah. So. But when it goes quote unquote well, you are up for three days doing this, and then your you, body. Well, does Well, it's like a afterwards. stage race. You know, like in the Tour de France, they race and then they go to bed and then. Oh, race you do the next that. Day. Okay. So this is like that. Like you do a stage and then you go to sleep and you wake up and you okay. do another stage. So the first day. You swim 6.2 miles and you ride your bike 90 miles. And then the second day, you ride your bike 170 miles. And then the third day, you do a 52-mile run. And so you kind of go all the way around the big island, which is a big island. It's like the size of Connecticut. And you sleep, like, wherever you, you know, they figured out where you're going to land. And just yeah, you have, like, there you have, like, in this y- place? Well, each athlete has to bring their own crew. So it's it's very old school. They don't even shut the traffic off. There's no, like, prize money or there's no big media attention in this race. It's right. very, like, grounded. you got to be dedicated. And, uh, you can't be in it for the cash and prize. So each athlete has a van that kind of follows them around and takes care of their athlete. And then there's a place to stay each night. So, right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> Not that, like, yeah. ascetic. I thought... <laughs> Picturing you running for three days straight. Uh, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know yeah. anything about this, but but I do Nor know. So you. so okay. But but to go, let's go back even further because you know, for all that you've written and you and you were such a good writer, I cannot believe you ever doubted yourself as a writer. Oh, thank you. Um, you know that you actually, I haven't read a lot that you have written about mm. the addiction phase. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it does sort of get um, not glo- not glossed over. That's the wrong. Phrasing, but but you haven't gone as into it as, of course, that's my obsession, right. you know, um, and and it's it is hard to reconcile with this, you know, guy who's been successful at seemingly everything he's tried, you know. Um, oh, very. That's so not the case, though. I mean, but you get how at least it looks right, like right. that on paper. When you, yeah, you can kind of craft the story and frame it so that it looks like this, you know, upward trajectory. But it's you know, as you know. And, sobriety right. and in life and everything it's not a linear thing you know and no, looking back that's... it looks like it all happened really quickly and easily but it, it, it definitely wasn't and you know I, t- I tell my addiction story in the book and, and I do talk about it and I'm open about it right, we were kind right. of chatting um, before we started recording about this kind of issue of, of, of anonymity yeah. and, and the tradition of anonymity that, that envelops recovery and, and how that is sort of a global thing and also a very personal thing. Like we have decision-making power of our own personal anonymity, but right. not that we don't really, that doesn't extend to other people. And right. how do you talk about recovery and how do you talk about addiction without transgressing? Right. That, you know, that well, tradition. especially when, you know, uh, 12 step, there is, there is no, there is no expert. There is no scholar. There is no, you know, mm-hmm. board you can call and say, Hey, is it okay if I say this, but I don't say that. Right. Um, and there are a lot of p- opinion, you know, alcoholics and, and all people tend to be very opinionated. And so you can, you just by even saying publicly that you're an alcoholic, that could ruffle somebody's feathers right. and they could tell you that, you know, that that's wrong. Like um, when I write about it, uh, I don't even know if it's okay for me to say Alcoholics Anonymous or just say like recovery. Like if, am I transgressing the parameters of that tradition by even mentioning the name? I don't know. Well, well, but, how have you, how have you, you ha- did you mention that in your book? I Look, think, I'm scared to even say I it. Think that. That I think maybe I did one or two times, right. but I was trying to kind of cautious about it because I don't, you know, I, my only goal is like, I want to be of service and help people. Right. Exactly. And, and, and if I'm 
personally anonymous about it, then I'm not able to be of service to people through writing or podcasts. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, you're talking to someone who has received an email and the from field said Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. So I once got a letter. It's funny. I I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast before. From the boss of AA. (laughs) I got one from AA. And it basically said to me, I I read it and I was so freaked out that I got it that I just sort of closed it and never went back to it. But I can search and find and I haven't done that. But it basically said like, we know you're talking about us. Please try to behave. Mm-hmm. kind of a thing. But what does that mean? I, that's what I didn't know. And so, you know, my whole thing about it was when I wrote my first book, which was a novel, I I fictionalized everything. I was just mm-hmm. paranoid because I felt I felt a little betrayed by the, a lot of the memoirs I'd read that had said, like, given addresses of meetings and talked about these things. So I did it, and I know, I'm not sure I did it right, but I changed, you know, I changed the language. I called sponsor something else. I called step something else, but mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about what had happened. And then when I started working at The Fix, I said, oh, I would, I, I'll do this job, but I won't ever talk about AA. And then, and then you, we started doing that website. And but how can, you, like, how can you be The Fix and not talk about well, it? Well, that's what I was naive. And yeah. so that people immediately started talking, you know, AA is the worst, you know, because the AA haters like went out yeah. and drove to that site. And so then I realized, you know, if there's nothing to defend it, I, I will do it. But I get nervous every single time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's an interesting thing, um, you know. I'm sure for every kind of email like that, like the AA email that you received, you probably get countless emails from people saying, thank you for writing what you wrote. It touched me. And, you know, now, like, you know, I have a clearer idea of what addiction or alcoholism is. And, you know, I'm looking at my own, you know, behaviors and and now I'm trying to redress them. So when you receive emails like that and you know that you're affecting people in a positive way, you know, that that's the counterpoint to that. Do you, how many emails like that do you I get? I get countless. Every single day I get emails from people. But saying, is it about addiction or is it about, you know, getting healthy? It's both, you know, because my book is weird. It's like trying to be three or four books in one, you know, like, right, where right. I, it's, like it's like, well, I have the addiction. It's sort of like this um, million little pieces, you know, kind of permanent midnight aspect to it. And then it has the kind of, Lance Armstrong, it's not about a bike. It's not right. about the bike aspect to right. it. And then it has a kind of a self-help dietary, you know, kind of how-to guide to it. Right. So it's kind of balancing all these different things. But, and, and certain, so it, there isn't one clear definitive audience for it, but there's, you know, people out there that are interested in the recovery aspect of it. And I get emails all the time. And on my podcast, I have guests on and we get into it. Yeah, oh, I saw you on Mishka Shibali. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you do? I'm going to see him next week in in New York. So, how I asked him if he knew you and he said, yeah, they got, yeah, because you guys are the kings of the Kindle single. Yeah, well, yeah, he said it like that. He said it all, yeah, like he was trying to remember. We totally know each other. Okay, yeah, he was like, I think I met her once. Like, he knows you from like online and your work. No, he's crazy. No, we have hung out. That's ludicrous. We should call him right now. Yeah, I want to, I (laughs) want, if my name comes up for him to go, not like this vague, weird look Uh on his face, like, I think I met her once. No, we no, no, hung out. Not in, not in like a not condescending in, way. Right, right, like right. In, a, in a more like, oh, she knows more than I do kind no, of way. No, 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 no. When weird. I first, when, yeah, the, the first call you make mm-hmm. if you get assigned a Kindle single is to Mishka Shubali if you're lucky. Right. You know, basically it was like, I, I, I met with the editor about doing it and I said, uh-huh. I reached out to Mishka right away and he was super helpful. Right, okay, cool. And then we sort of became friends. I thought we were uh-huh. friends. Maybe I need to reassess. No, I think you are friends. <laughs> But I'm gonna so, I'm gonna see him. I'm going to New York unless my plane gets snowed out this weekend. And I'm gonna I'm gonna hang out with him. But he's one of those guys who like like I started reading his stuff oh, and so I was good. like, oh, this guy's my best friend already. Yeah. And then I met him and it was like we knew each other forever. So we text every almost every day. Yeah, I, I could like, totally see he's that. My guy. Okay, you're closer yeah, to him than me. I love him. It's fine. No, no, his writing is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Is so he's so good. 
And um, yeah, and I'm, I'm not surprised that you two connected. So how, right. so you did you reach out to him when you read something? We, were put, we were put in, I knew who he was, and also because his book would always come up when I would obsessively check Amazon. Oh, yeah, The Longest Run. <laughs> yeah, like right. The Long Run was always like a notch above mine. And I was right. like, who is this guy? Yeah, like, this exactly. Kindle single, this you know? This 30-page thing. We were introduced by another podcasting guy, actually, who was like, this guy, Dean Dwyer, he's like, you should, you should interview Mishka. And yeah. I reached out to him, and like we just had a couple snarky emails back and forth. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I love this guy already. But did you so, do it over You did it over the phone? I was going to New York. No, oh, so okay. we did it. We've done... We've actually done three podcasts together. Oh my god! He's like my, I mean, if he lived in LA, he would be like my co-host. Right, you know? like, right, right, right. Because <laughs> awesome. I could talk to him forever. But yeah, um, but yeah, but so so yeah, with Mishka and with a few other people, we've gotten into the you know the addiction and recovery stuff, and and I love talking about that. And and uh, you know, I know that it's helpful to people because I get too many emails that make it undeniable. So, right. you know, we, you and I, we've made a choice to not be anonymous about our recovery and our sobriety. And that, that has its own perils. Right. You know? When did you make that choice? <clears throat> uh, I made it. When you were I writing think I, I think I was writing, you know, I'd, I would, I would reference it in blogging occasionally, but it wasn't until I wrote my book. Right. And know? then you had to make a conscious choice. I'm like, yeah. I mean, and I was gonna... making that conscious choice. And, and what happened was, you know, I'm writing, I get this book deal, which, you know, first of all, like, you know, I'm astounded that I even got a book deal. Okay, so what happened? So, so you were blogging and you were gathering an audience. I was, yeah, I was blogging. I was, I was sort of, yeah, gathering an audience through writing on my website and, you know, sort of sharing, pers- you know, sort of very honestly and openly like this journey that I was on. And then when I started to perform quite well in these races, then, you know, sort of more mainstream media was picking up the story. And, right. And then Men's Fitness ran this thing and said I was one of the 25 fittest guys. And so suddenly I was getting all this attention, you know, right. where I was just like, I'm just doing my thing. Right. And, uh, and then CNN, like Sanjay Gupta picked up the story and ran, me, and ran a story about me. And, and so suddenly I was like, you know, kind of more in the spotlight than I ever imagined I ever would be. Right. And uh, and actually, the book deal came about in a very recovery-oriented way. It's a very cool story. What happened was there was a um, an article about me in the Stanford Alumni Magazine, mm-hmm. and it said, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and kind of told a little... It was a short little article. <clears throat> and then I got an email out of the blue from a guy who... Uh, who um, I want to be careful because I want to protect his anonymity, but he was a guy that I didn't really know who was a couple years older than me at school, but I knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had never, I don't know that we had ever actually met in person, but I knew his name and he, mm-hmm. he reached out to me. He's like, Hey, I read that story. I'd love to talk to you. Can I call you? And I was like, okay. He was kind of a, like a, a big deal on campus. Right. And, um, and so we ended up talking and he was like, I'm a, I'm a, executive at a big company. I'm CEO, you know, and my company's getting ready to, you know, do big things, and I just got out of Hazleton. Wow. And nobody, my board of directors doesn't know, nobody knows, you know, my family knows and all of right. that, but, like, I'm under a lot of stress, and, you know, I don't have a sponsor, and, and right. you know, I'm just, he was literally, like, a week out of rehab or something like right. that. So I said, listen, you got to get a sponsor, but I'm happy to talk to you, and we would talk on and off, you know, over the next couple months, and, uh, you know, trying to impart whatever experience I could to him. And, uh, and then he, one day he was like, Hey, you know, I used to, uh, rent this house from this book agent. Your story's so compelling. Like, you know, you should, you should, 
I think you should talk to her. You know, she would, she might be really interested in your story. And I was like, okay. And I thought about doing a book, but it was seemed like such a far fetched reality. For right. Me. Um, so it wasn't like I had some book proposal all ready to go. So I spoke to this book agent and I said, here's kind of the, you know, the, the thumbnail of my story. And she's like, that's pretty interesting. Um, you know, I'd be into exploring this. I'm like, why don't we work on a proposal together? So I busted my butt for like three months on a proposal and, you know, wrote it like my life depended on it. I just got really into it. And then she was like, well, publishing is so hard. You know, you got to thread the needle. And, right. you know, it's kind of like the movie business. If you're not making like Shrek 3 or like, you know, the Avengers, they're not interested. You right. know, so it has to be a very specific thing. And she was very, not pessimistic, but but sort of cautious. Like, you know, I, we'll, I'll do my best and we'll see what happens. And I ended up selling the book in like, you know, 48 hours, you know, sort of like a preemptive bid. And it was like it all happened. Like it was like this divinely, you know, graced experience where right. it all came together. And I got this amazing editor at the great, you know, at, at Crown Random House. Right. Like it was the best of all worlds. You right. know, it was like everything and that agent out. sold it even though she was not. Yeah, she sold it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it, it all, all worked out. But yeah. it was all because of basically... Um, extending yourself and being of service to somebody right. in, the, in, the, in the program. Right. You know what I mean? So right. it's that, that spiritual equation of when you're giving, when you're of service, you get you back, get back yeah. tenfold. Yeah. And that, like, Not always in the life. form of a book deal. No, Sometimes yeah, I know. Like, that's a very, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they say, like, when you get sober, you know, that's what you get. You get sober. It's not like you're promised some beautiful, amazing life. But I know right. that the more I am of service, that, you know, my life is richer and better. And that doesn't mean that you get a book deal or a right. Ferrari or, you know, whatever. But right. it means you have a chance at a good life. Yeah, yeah. Or even the, you know, the children and the exactly. family and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so where are you from, Rich? Washington D.C. Washington D.C. Yeah. So you raised there, uh, and um, family is you know very education is focused. Yeah. What, what's the what was the sort of pretty traditional values? Pretty pretty traditional. You know, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic house. Uh, my parents are still together. My needs were always met. We when I was in high school, we were kind of we started off middle class, and my dad kind of he was a lawyer, and you know he got more and more successful each year. Um, so, you know, upper middle class by the time I graduated high school. And brothers? And, uh, I, like I, have brothers. One, I have one sister. One sister, yeah, one, okay. one younger sister. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, I was I went to private high school, uh -huh. coat, coat and tie. Oh, that kind of private high school, okay. Yeah. All boys? No. All boys. Okay. Yeah, all boys high school. But I was, you know, I was a, a loner kid. You know, I was always sort of self-conscious and... Um, you know, when I was younger, I had a patch on one eye and the headgear, and mm. you know, I was a, not a vision for you. Right. You know, I was very insecure. What was wrong with your little eye? I have a wandering eye. Oh, you do? I, I can't see it eye. at all. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, oh, okay. It goes on. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Too bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, listeners That's good can't podcasting. see that. Creepy thing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see anything, by um, the way. But it's, you know, okay, the typical yeah. thing of like, you know, feeling like everyone else has the rule book to life and you don't. Right. And, and, and uh, I discovered the sport of swimming when I was about right. 12 years old and it was the first thing that I was ever good at, you know, and I kind of took to that and it was this womb-like experience because I could go to the pool and I could be away from the bullies and when your head's underwater, you know, no one can bug you. And Were they picking on you? Yeah, I was a little bit of a, I got, What'd I was you on the receiving on end of, I was a very nerdy, like awkward looking kid. Oh. I think, so, <laughs> but, um, 
but you know, I really gave myself to that sport. And in, in certain respects, you can make the argument that that was like my first drug of choice. Right. You know, I just went all in on so that. So every day after school, that's what you did. I, w- I got up every morning at four forty-five, mm-hmm. and I went to some practice, and went to school, and then went to some practice after school for another two hours. Right. So I was like training like three to four hours a day. Right. And uh, by the time I graduated high school, and then you know I wasn't a great student, but then my grades picked up, and by the time I was a senior in high school, I was a top student at my school, and. And I was a top swimming recruit. You know? right. So I was getting recruited by all these colleges. And I wasn't into drugs and alcohol in high school because I was training so much. But then I started going on these recruiting trips. And they just they basically you know, designed the party for you. And, right. Because uh, the, they're all wooing yeah, you? Yeah. So what was your first, first drink? What was that like? The, fir- the first time I got drunk, I was visiting uh, University of Michigan. And it was a, they had had a big swim meet and then a big party afterwards. And I can, I'll still, I'll never forget being at this party. Um, and it was the middle of winter. And, and uh, I was given a beer and like a giant big gulp cup. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to do this. And I drank it. And it was that trite thing that you yeah. always hear of just feeling like the warm blanket being, you know, enveloping you. And suddenly the light's going on and thinking, this is amazing. You know, this is the solution to every problem that I didn't know that I had. Right. And right. just suddenly comfortable in your own skin. I could look at a girl in the eye and right. flirt and tell a joke. And I was laughing with people and I was comfortable around other people. Cause I was always like a, a wallflower if I even went to a party, which was rarely. Right. So, right. and the one thing that happened that was remarkable was, um, in the middle of this party, uh, there was a guy called Bruce Kimball, mm-hmm. and he was a very, very famous, decorated diver, mm-hmm. Olympic, Olympic champ. I don't know if he was a gold medalist. I think he got a silver medal in like '84. I'm not sure, but um, but uh, a terrible alcoholic, and he had. Um, I can't remember. I'm gonna I'm gonna botch all the facts, but he had um, uh gotten into a lot of trouble with his drinking and I think it, it, it had already progressed at this point and I saw him hold a cup a plastic cup of beer that he got from the keg and then do a standing backflip holding this beer and land on his feet and he didn't spill the beer right and I thought that was the coolest thing I had ever seen right and this guy went on I think a couple of years after this and he he crashed his car head-on into a bunch of people he killed some people and ended up in jail and you know basically destroyed his life and i think he's sober now i'm not sure exactly what he's doing but it was this horribly tragic incident and his father was the olympic diving coach oh my god so you know here's the guy that i'm looking at like that is the, i want to be right. like that guy right you know right. what i mean and to see what had happened to him later i think you need to have him on your podcast so, by the way i would like to I'd do like that, to see that i think you should have him on your podcast yeah too. we could both we could share mm-hmm. so you so you're on that trip and you have your first drink and you see this you know that this is the life you can lead and you then what happens after that well, it was a it was a slow progression. Right. I mean, I you know, I ended up like you know, by the time what happened was I got into every college, you know, right. I got into every college I applied to. I got into Harvard, I got into Princeton, and I ended up going to Stanford. Right. So I left. I was like I'm going to California, you know, I, I want to get away as far away from the East Coast as possible. And at the time, <clears throat> Stanford had the number one swimming program in the country, and I could have gone to 
I was going to go to Harvard where I would have been a standout, you know, person on the team right away. And at Stanford, there were Olympic gold medalists and right. gold record holders. And, and I was kind of going to be a walk on if I went there, but I was like, I'm going to be the little fish in the big pond. Like I got to give it a go. And when I got there, I just, you know, I just got enamored with partying, you know? Right. And so it was a slow degradation of, you know, everything aspirational in my life. And the first thing that drinking did was that it just, it destroyed my swimming career. I swam all right my freshman year. And then after that, I really never swam fast again. And all of my kind of dreams and hopes, like I was going to be a doctor and I just forgot about all that stuff. And all I cared about was, you know, where's my next good time. Did you stay on the team the whole time? I, I didn't swim my senior year, so I quit. Yeah, right. I quit. Mm-hmm. I have a question. So going back, you didn't grow up in an alcoholic family. Was there alcoholism somewhere in your family? Um, like, yeah, there there are hints around the but edges not really. here and there, but no, there was never any. But there was never a, somebody in the family where you're like, oh, stay away from yeah, uncle or whoever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. So I never, I didn't grow up around it, right? You know, and it wasn't in my experience, and I, you know, there was no abuse in my family and or anything like that. So, um, and what about what about this um, dedication to athletics? Was that something, or, or was that also something that was unusual about you? Um, there was no one else in my family who is that dedicated to sports or right. athletics, but it was a very achievement oriented household. Right. Like I definitely grew up with pressure to perform right. academically and, uh, and always trying to kind of grab that carrot or right. always feeling like you're falling short and, you know, never kind of feeling like, uh, you know, you've made it or getting kind of that feeling of security around that. Yeah, I relate to that. And it's, you know, and it's a, it's a hard thing in mm-hmm. life because if you didn't ever get that, it's hard to start giving that to yourself even right. when you are, you know, because your brain is just always like, well, who cares? There's right. somebody better, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so did you, but did you didn't, did you graduate okay from Stanford even though you were, you know? In yeah, I graduated. I graduated okay. I mean, I was, you know, I was a functioning alcoholic right. for many years, you know, right. and I was able to, by the hair of my chinny chin chin, like get into law school and, you know. And was, so when you said your dreams, <laughs> like so you wanted to be a doctor and so your dad was a lawyer. So you thought, right. okay, well the doctor thing, I didn't do pre-med clearly, right? but I could go to law school. Is that how that came about? Yeah, it wasn't like, oh, I have this fascination with the law. Right. And it was more like, that's a stand-up thing to do that I can receive, you know, a pat on the back and we'll, it's socially acceptable and I get to wear a nice suit and right. have nice lunches. It wasn't like the practice of law was all that alluring. It was more like this is a safe thing to do. Do you think the practice of law is all that alluring to anybody? Yeah. I, I think there are certain people for whom it is and, and God bless them, you know. But I think I think there are a lot of at least corporate lawyers out there sort of suffering quietly. Yeah. So you went to Cornell right, for mm-hmm. law school. So you go back. I was the last person uh, accepted off the wait list. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I barely got in, and uh, so I figured if if I don't graduate last in my class, then that's a move up. <laughs> did you, you know? do it? Did you succeed? And in- yeah, I did. I don't know where in the class I, I graduated, but I did. I did fine. Guy. But I was, you know, I really like ramped up the drinking when I. Well, I, I lived in New York City for a couple of years after college and that's really you know that's that's, that's like disneyland for alcoholics you know no car you can walk around the street drinking and after hours parties that go till 5 a.m you know whatever right. so i definitely tapped into that you know and that was really where it it clicked into like a, a higher gear of like getting into trouble and, and uh, how did you get in trouble more more not not trouble with the law really i mean bar fights and stuff like that but right. but really just like sort of 
digging a hole for my spirit mostly, you know, I think. And then thinking I'm going to go to law school and it's a, it was geographic, you know, right. I'll, I'll be, I'm going to be in this small town. I'm going to be away from Manhattan. I'll be able to focus. I'll be in a structured environment. And of course that, you know, doesn't really work. Um, just alcohol though. You weren't doing drugs. Yeah, pretty much a pure purist. Mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like uh, I feel insecure about that. Yeah, like, I, wish I, I know. Had pre- I don't blame you. It's and, very and to be clear, unusual. like my story is pretty pedestrian. You know, like I got into trouble and I reached some pretty dark, low places, especially at the end. And there's some crazy drama that that occurred around that, and a, a, you know, like a wedding that went awry and all kinds of nonsense. Your own. But, yeah, yeah. I want to hear that story. <laughs> That's like a four-hour podcast. Well, okay, but cause, I mean, <laughs> it's somewhere. It's somewhere that like it went right on the honeymoon. It did. I ended up uh, sending my uh, supposed supposed wife home in the middle of the honeymoon. Um, how but, does uh, that happen? It's such a. In order to like understand what happened, I'd have to fill in so many details. But essentially, what happened was, I was I was living. I was a lawyer in San Francisco and uh, engaged to this woman. Uh, who was living in Palo Alto? Well, I'd been li- and 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 then uh, we got engaged, and I got a job in Los Angeles. I moved down here, so the latter months of our engagement, we were living in separate cities. Right. And she started to get cold feet, and she was seeing the signs of like alcoholism eking out all over the place, and and uh, and we ended up going through with the wedding. But what I didn't realize at the time is she really had no uh, plans for actually being married to me. Mm-hmm. But she was too. How do I explain it? I mean, she, I think she wanted me to call it off. Right. And she was right. sending me all these signals like, please call off this wedding without actually saying it. And I was trying, I was sort of being the nice codependent. Guy yeah, or... like trying to make her feel comfortable. Or, right. You know, and where she just wanted me to beat it. You know? Right. And when I didn't call it off, and then she, we were kind of stuck in this scenario, we actually went through with this ceremony and you know sort of like everybody you love in this one place for this right you know for this this thing and uh and then she didn't want to sign the marriage certificate so that was a whole other saga yeah so we ended cool. up not selling we ended up not actually consummating it either physically or on paper but everybody thought you had but everybody thought we had there. exactly yeah. and i didn't want to go on this honeymoon with her and I was confused and alone, and I couldn't tell anybody what was happening because I was so ashamed. Right. And we ended up, because it had already been paid for, we went on this honeymoon anyway, and it was a horrific experience of sort of not speaking to each other until I couldn't take it anymore and said, you know, you got to go. And that's that's the last time I've seen her, actually. Okay. Yeah. There were no amends? There or... was no... Well, I've made... Yeah, well, that's a whole other thing, yeah. like how to make amends to that. You know, like I have a... Like, I was so angry for so long. How could this person do this to me and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the work in recovery has really been owning, you know, how I contributed to that. And, right. And, and for the most part, you know, I created that whole scenario. And my, amends, my amends really to her is, is a living amends to not be like that and to let her live her life. I mean, right. She was having an affair the whole time. And she ended up marrying this guy that she was having an affair with when, I, when we were engaged and all this, you know, insanity. Right, um, right. And in my book, I was very clear to kind of, you know, tell her, you know, that uh, that I was sorry. And you haven't heard yet. I haven't heard from her. Right. I, you know, I would imagine. She, I, I can't imagine she's not. She's not. She's unaware of that. But it's right. not like there's been any right. exchange. Right. Right. So okay, but so you you despite your your developing alcoholism, you graduate from law school. Mm-hmm. 
somehow. Somehow. I mean, like, law school's not easy, yeah, no, but you did it's that. Not, yeah, I would like, you know, I don't know how that happened, but I did. <laughs> you weren't even on any of the good stimulant yeah. drugs, so I, I don't know. You I know. Just, I, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somehow I got through that. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, found my, and I got a good job. You know, I got a good job in a law firm in San Francisco. And I wasn't into it, though. Like, literally, right. I was terrible because I was trying to do the least amount of work possible and not get fired. And, and, and I was, frankly, I was bored in San Francisco. And I wanted to be more in entertainment-related work. And I, I did get what a job What kind of law were you here. practicing? I was doing, at that time, I was doing, like, employment law litigation mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, uh, and I wanted to come down here. And I did get a job down here at a, at a pretty cool firm that was doing some interesting things. And, and what happened was is, you know, when you're, when you're living in San Francisco, I could go out really late and get really drunk and figure out how to drive my car on back streets and not get pulled over. And, you know, I'd wake up and not know where I'd park my car and, you know, ride, ride a mountain bike around the neighborhood looking for it. Right. <laughs> that kind I of mean, stuff. I lived but, in San Francisco. Uh, it's not quite as easy to get to be a drunk there as you're, as you're making it. Well, what sound, I, my, point, my point being that, that when I moved to Los Angeles, it was very different. Like, I got, I got, I got a DUI almost, like, immediately, you know. Mm-hmm. And then it was a wake-up call because the police, you know, the way they treat you in Los Angeles is very different. You know, they treat you like you're on crack, you've got a shotgun, you know, under the seat right. and you stole a car and there's a dead body in the trunk. Right. You know? And that's the way you're, you're, and I suppose they have to do that. But I got two DUIs in like six weeks. Well, that's know? also bad so, luck. Yeah. I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I drove drunk yeah. for years and never did. But, but I got, you know. I think I got pulled over like maybe, I don't know, 12 or 15 times in my whole life and right. never actually got a DUI until I came here. So it was about time. Right. right. My you number was up. Yeah. So you got these DUIs and you said, and they made you do a court card. Is that how you came yeah, into Yeah, to do all that. And I would like forge the signature yeah. of the court card. And I mean, after the first one, I was like, well, everybody gets a DUI. Right. And then when I got the second one and they were like, you're going to jail. You know, I was like, that was a, that was a, a reckoning moment of realizing like, yeah, you're a little bit. I mean, of course, I always knew I was an alcoholic, but there's that there's a difference between that knowledge and actually taking action to like confront it. When you say you always knew, what do you mean? Like from that first time? I think on a very sub, on a very unconscious level the first time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it became clear to me in not very, in a not very long period of time that, you know, my drinking was different than everyone else. Or, you know, I was that, you know, why am I always the last guy to leave the party? And why am right. I drinking, you know, in college? Why am I drinking the beers that are sitting around at the party with cigarette butts in them? And right. you know, things like right. that. Like right. other people aren't doing that. And, and you know, going out two nights a week, went to three nights a week, went to four nights a week until, you know, it's like my life was degrading and other people were just having fun. And so I knew right. like that I was different. And, you know, you're kind of trying to manage it because you don't want to give it up. So you're trying to create these checks and balances on it. But I always knew, like, someday this is going to be, you know, probably more of a problem than I would like it to be. And so then that day came. And did you mm-hmm. go – you didn't go into treatment anywhere. You just went to – Not initially. Uh, ultimately I did, oh, yeah. Okay. But, I mean, I, I took a stab at, like, trying to get sober by showing up in the rooms. and, and uh, But, you know, I wasn't ready to – give myself over to it, you know, I was a a tourist, you know, I'd come in late, sit in the back, try not to talk to anybody, get out there, get my court card signed, yeah, yeah, exactly, and and then I could say, like, I'm in it, you know, but I kept relapsing, I was, you know, I was just a habitual relapser, in and out, in and out, and it just got darker and darker and darker and less and less fun, the fun was gone, and at the end, um, 
you know, I was drinking vodka tonics in the shower and, and uh, you know, cradling a, a tall boy between my legs, driving to work and hiding, you know, sneaking drinks in the day and hiding empties and, and uh, you know, on the verge of... When I got my second DUI, my boss knew about it. Mm-hmm. It was a story like he... Uh, we he was handling some excessive force cases with the LAPD and the Beverly Hills Police Department. Mm-hmm. And my second DUI, my they were I got .27 and .29, so I was low. Yeah, yeah, right. like, I was way gone, right? Right. And the second one, I was going the wrong way down a one-way street in That's Beverly bad. Hills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at like three in the morning. Not good. And the cop who arrested me uh, took my when he they take all your stuff. He saw my business card. And he's like, right. I know this firm, you know, like, right. and he called my boss and he said, I picked up one of your boys. So my boss like knew he calls right. me into his office, you know, and he's like, what's going on? You know? And I'm like, am I getting fired? It's like, you're not getting fired, but you got to deal with what's going on. And, um, so the volume's getting turned up right? right? and relapse, relapse, relapse until one day, you know, I just woke up one morning hung over and it was not too dissimilar from so many others and just had that willingness to do something different and it had been suggested to me by my parents who really didn't want to talk to me until I was ready to deal with the problem that you know I should check out treatment and just that day I was like okay I'll I'll go like I was just I'd had enough I was desperate and uh that night I was on a plane and where'd you what I went to uh it was called Springbrook it's now it's owned by Hazleton but it's in it's outside it's outside Portland okay Okay. it's called Springbrook Northwest and uh and it's since been acquired by Hazleton, so it is a Hazleton now. But it's like in farmland, like maybe an hour outside of Portland. And it worked. Like you got well, it, it there. It worked. Yeah, I mean, I was like, I showed up thinking, you know, I got to get back to work. And yeah. you know, I'm going to be here. For, I'm going to stay here maybe three weeks. I'm going to clean the pipes out. And I got to hustle, right. hustle back because right. I'm so important. Very and, important. you know, how's yeah. the world going to function without me? Yeah. And for the first time, though, because I had that willingness, and as you know, like, it's all about willingness, mm-hmm. um, for the first time, I had to kind of relate honestly about how I was living my life. And I remember one of the first kind of assignments or tasks we had to do was to write down 10 incidents of where your drinking or using like, got you into trouble. Oh, okay. or like, here was what I was planning to do. Like, I'm going to meet a friend for a drink, you know, and then right. here's what actually happened. And then you tell this terrible story of where it led right. you, how that affected you and how that affected other people in your life. And then you had to read it aloud, like in front right. of like 60 people. And I did that honestly. And they were like, yeah, you're, uh, you have the alcoholism we typically see in like a 65 year old man. Like we think really? you ought to think about sticking around a little bit longer than a couple of weeks. And it's like, it's up to you, you know, right. but you know, this is our suggestion. How and, long did you stay? And so I, I stayed for a hundred days. Uh-huh. Wow. Good for you. And, uh, that changed everything. Yeah. It changed my life and it saved my life. And so, um, and then you came back and you got serious about, you know, making it a priority in your life. Right. So, so I, I came back and yeah, it was all about building foundation of sobriety. So I was going to at least a meeting a day, if not two meetings a day. Right. And I was living in Santa Monica at the time, but um, I had a morning commitment at a popular meeting in West Hollywood. That's how we knew each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, From that um, meeting. Right. And um, went to that 
went to that meeting every day. Yeah. Now we're skirting on that line of like whatever. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, if you don't say the name of it, it's fine. I know. We gathered at seven thirty in the morning with like a hundred other people, and it was good, and it was important, and it saved my life. And and what was interesting about it for me was that it defied every expectation of what I thought um, recovery was about, mm-hmm. because other sort of gatherings, if mm-hmm. you will, that I'd been to were kind of more in line with your what you would conjure up as your expectation for what these meetings are. Oh, your are worst like. nightmare with the, tooth, yeah. the toothless. And this was different because there were all these young people. Yeah. And they were cool. And yeah. they were like interesting and creative and they looked happy. And they were like people that I, I, I'm like, these are people I could be friends with. Right. And I, I didn't know that that was possible. I know. I had the same experience. You know? And and because uh, I thought I was just going to be hanging out with old dudes in trench right, coats, right. chain smoking. And you were okay with that. And I was ready to do that yeah. because I, I was that desperate. But when I realized like there's this incredible vitality and energy around um, sobriety, in particular young people in sobriety in Los Angeles, I just grabbed onto that yeah. with everything. Yeah. And, and the people that I met at that particular, they're st- you know, it's now 16 years later. Oh they're God. still like my f- best friends. Really? You know, so. so so the people you know from there, you still talk to all, all the, the time. time? All right. the time. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so then, and then you were able to, you know, build this great life, meet the woman, start having the kids, mm-hmm. build up the law practice. Right. So that it was like, you know, when I was 18, you know, the world was my oyster. I was like on this pedestal like oh my god he's this amazing talented swimmer and he's you know academically on top of the world like he's our next senator you know it's like that kind of a thing you right know? and uh and i squandered all that you know and i destroyed all that so you know it was time to you know make hay trying to like repair all the wreckage that did I you feel like created. that again in sobriety like you had all you know the world at your fingertips or no no i felt like i needed to claw my way back up to oh, okay. just a, Where a modicum of respectability right um but but the interesting thing that happened was it what i didn't it, very quickly like what happens when you're when you're newly sober is you're compelled to look inside yourself yeah. And it's an inside job, as they say. And if you do that with honesty and with rigor, you will discover many things about yourself. And it became clear to me that I'd never really developed a, a healthy relationship with who I was or right. really was in touch with with what I wanted to do or what I wanted to share. And, I, and, and I, as if I was living someone else's life. Like I'd, my whole life was about the American dream, you know, study hard, get good grades, go to the good school and get the good job and kind of, you know, climb the ladder. Right. right? And this is how you become not just a responsible member of society, but a happy person. Right. And as I was starting to kind of do that again and, and what my experience prior to getting sober, I realized like, I'm not happy doing that. This is not the life for me. And so I realized that I was going to be probably embarking in a different trajectory, much to the chagrin of my parents I suppose sure. like sure. you know I don't know that this mantle of you know being a you know a partner in a law firm is really the right tact for me I can will myself into it I'm right. smart enough to do it right but it's like jamming a square peg into a round hole right so I did go back and I was at the law firm and I was trying to do all the right things and and as I got more and more sober 
that that life became more and more incompatible with like what I wanted to do and who I was. And that created like a, a interpersonal crisis that I had to reconcile. Would I have a question before we get into your interpersonal crisis? <laughs> did you like bicycle over here or do we need to worry about your meter? No, I, I, I drove, I parked on the uh, side street over there. There wasn't even a meter. Okay, well that's because you're just a little bit smarter than mm. my previous guest. Usually there, there's an incident where we have to stop and, and I don't sound at it. So and as just, a podcasting veteran, yeah. <laughs> I may have to take a bathroom break, but I will not have to go change the meter. Okay, well that's good to know. Should we take our bathroom break now? Do you have to go? I no, can keep going. No, I'm, I'm, I'm inhuman. Good. I don't know. Okay, no. Right. <laughs> How long do we go for? Seven hours. Is that cool? So, yeah. Well, we like to go, if, if you've ever done a race we like to go as long three as that days. race yeah three yeah. days okay and i thought though that race was without sleeping so we're not gonna yeah. sleep no it got i don't really go well, with my with my show i just go i go as long as the conversation is interesting yeah, yeah. You know? like some people are like our podcast. time is up and i'm like why is our time up we're yeah just having you know you don't say that when you're having a conversation with someone right if only you we know. could if I only know. that was societally acceptable but that's the beauty of podcasting you yeah. don't have to be in a radio format no i know i love yeah. it i just love that you get to hear people you know not give the scripted answers and to make mistakes and yeah. you know all of that stuff so but so okay and so then this is around the time of your 40th birthday when you get winded walking up the stairs right <laughs> I, I know. sort of yeah i mean right you've done your homework well you know i know um, bits of the the myth yeah i mean i think what it what had been happening was you know here i am like jamming this square peg into a round hole right. and like you know it it it, it, it it's sort of like uh, what Henry D David Thoreau said: the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, right. and what is considered resignation is confirmed desperation. Oh, I never ever hear yeah, the second that's part. That's the full part. That's yeah. the full quote. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think it was true in his time, and 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 maybe even more true now, but certainly true in my life. You know, I was like, I was living, I was I was in an existence where I was getting paid really well, and I was trying to you know, do all the right things and, and, you know, and, and, and really unhappy, like, but, but feeling like I was in this prison, I didn't know how to escape because it was right. all I knew. And so what do I do? I spend all my money on things that I think are going to make me happy and buy a fancy car and all that right. kind of stuff. And, um, and meanwhile, I'm, I'm, I'm medicating my emotions through the foods that I'm choosing to eat. So I'm eating a lot of crap food. I'm eating McDonald's and Pizza Hut and just Jack of the Box. And, right. you know, really, and it wasn't until many years later that I realized how much of that was emotional. And, uh, you know, when, and I was used to being an athlete and swimming and I could just eat whatever I wanted and it didn't matter. But, you know, I was now I was sitting at a desk, you know, for many years I've just been sitting at a desk and, Packed on like 50 pounds and, you know, I was never like super obese or anything. So or, is this when I, like our conversation by the, like on the 4th of July was around then? Because I don't ever remember you being heavy. Uh, I don't, what year was that? That was 2001 or 2002. Yeah, no, this started to really ramp up like around uh, a couple of years later than that, I suppose. Um, yeah, so I was like... I mean, I got like, you know, I got all beefed out, you know, I had the big round head and, mm -hmm. you know, I just looked like a guy who's working too much at the law firm, you know, right. it wasn't like that unusual, but it was more like how I felt inside. Like I just felt like I was dying, you know? Right. And, uh, and, um, and yeah, it all came to a head like shortly before I turned 40 and had this moment walking up the stairs, <laughs> going to bed late one night and, and, you know, had to take a break halfway up a staircase and, right. you know, winded out of breath, sweat on my brow and tightness in my chest and 
you know, it's not like I was having a heart attack, but it was scary enough to make me really, um, you know, take stock of how I was living my life and my lifestyle choices. And, um, you know, when you, it all goes back to recovery because when you have that sort of moment of clarity and you decide you're going to get sober, you realize the power of that, that moment, you know, and that we all have these moments in our life where we can make these decisions. And if we, if we're able to, you know, summon the courage to do that, that your life can change in a profound way. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're saying that because I do not have, I have had that experience with Mm -hmm. drugs and alcohol and I've had that experience with smoking cigarettes, Mm -hmm. but I have never had that experience about anything else. Where, th- but, but maybe you're a happily adjusted person uh, who's living. You're, you're a very, make no mistake. There is no way that's true. <laughs> but you're you're pretty actualized in the sense that you you are you know a creative person. You're in your you know you're in your creative uh, power, and you know what you have to offer, and you're engaged. But in there's that. a lot that I would love to be able mm-hmm. to do that with. There's stuff right now where I wish I could make that decision, and then just right. like with with twelve step, what was amazing was that there was this there was just do this. Go here, say that, call right. this, read this. Whereas in life, there isn't something like that. Right. I think pain is the great motivator. You know, if you're in enough pain yeah, over I, something, yeah, then you can I know, like, I know how to harness pain. that. Yeah. <laughs> the trick is to be able to do that when you're not in that. To, to understand you have that power within you all the time. And right. you don't have to be in a terrible place of suffering in order right. to make that change. That's the hard But who, part. nobody's willing. I mean, I, yeah, I, I yeah. mean, I'm barely willing when I'm in that kind of pain. I know. You know, um, believe me, I know. So, but, and because, because your wife already had healthy eating, do you think, so you knew the, at least the first step was to do this cleanse, right? Well, what happened What yeah, so I have this moment and, and I'm thinking, you know, I got to change and I need to change now. Like I, it, it has to happen yeah. immediately yeah. and it has to be specific um, because I know like if I just blow it off that I'll just go back to doing what I, what I was doing before, just like a relapse. Right. Know? And, uh. And, you know, I, I grabbed onto my wife because she was a healthier person than me. Not right. that I didn't, like, go read a bunch of books or right. anything like that. Um, she was just what was available to me. And the, the interesting thing about that is that she had been trying sort of unsuccessfully for many years to try to introduce me to this or that. Like, right. you know, even though I'm in recovery and it's a spiritual program, she was a much more spiritually developed individual than I was. Like, she's always reading books from this guru or that and trying to develop her, you know, kind of, uh, personal growth and all these sorts of things. And she'd like, read this book. Why don't you read this book? Or this guy has something interesting to say, or like, why don't we start eating this way? And, and the more she kind of pushed, the more resistant I was, I was like, leave me alone. You know? And then she kind of had a moment where she's like, all right, I have a decision to make. Like either I'm going to continue to try to compel him to do something that he doesn't want to do. Or I'm going to truly like just be in acceptance of who he is. Like I'm married to this guy. I'm going to choose to love him the way that he is. And I'm going to honestly like in my heart like let go of my need or desire for him to be anything different than he is. Right. And when that shifted, which was around this same time, like I could feel that energy change. And I was like, oh, like I mean it's on me. Like I actually like have to make this decision for myself. That's interesting. Which is kind of like a, an Al-Anon kind of thing, yeah. right? You know, and I think that that really that was powerful because it really did make me have to take responsibility. And these things, all these things, kind of dovetailed around the same time. So, so yeah. So I, that's what I did. I did this like juice cleanse, which was like, you know, detoxing off heroin. It was terrible. Really, <laughs> like, you were sick. Like, 
Well, the first like day and a half, yeah, I was like buckled over on the couch. I couldn't move. And yeah. It's like, horrible. But, it, but, you know, it's like, you know, if there's one thing we know how to do, it's like what we know what a detox is like. We know like it'll get better. If we right. Just stick with it or whatever. Right, right. And by the end of that period, that little experiment, I really did feel incredible. Like I felt better than I'd felt in I, as long as I could remember, you know, maybe ever. You know, the, the, the extent to which my vitality like spiked was, was extraordinary. Right. Like I couldn't believe how good I could feel in such a short period of time by doing this simple thing. Right. And it made me really think about uh, or, or understand how resilient the human body is you know that in especially like drugs alcohol unhealthy lifestyle stress you know fast food all these sorts of things that i've been like abusing myself with for so long that in like literally a week i could feel differently like right. that's crazy right right you know? yeah it's a powerful system we got going here right and then and so today and so now so you you it's all plant-based, all, everything that you eat. Well, not at that time. I mean, now it is, yeah. Right. So I've kind of, that's how it's evolved. I mean, it wasn't like an overnight thing. I mean, I did this juice cleanse, and I'm like, I want to continue to feel this good. How am I going to do that? And I played around with, you know, different ways of eating, and I experimented with being a vegetarian, not because I had some extraordinary compassion for the animals, but I thought it made sense to me in a recovery context because in recovery it's very black and white you know you're right. you're you're either drinking or you're not you know you're right. you're doing you're sober or you're using right. there's no gray area and like of all the kind of diets like oh well if you're a vegetarian it's kind of the same it's an analog right. you know right. it's like you're eating meat or you're not like i could wrap my brain around like that made sense to me right. because i see the world through this prism of recovery yeah right and it's very black and most right. alcoholics see it as black mm -hmm. and white anyway but the problem is that, you know, I'm also a lawyer, so I'm looking for the loopholes. And, you know, it's right. like, well, I could go to, I could eat Pizza Hut if I don't put pepperoni on the pizza. Right. Like, that's vegetarian, you know? Right. So I started doing cheating, and I just, I wasn't doing it right. I wasn't really eating very healthy. And I did that for, like, six months. And, you know, it was back to, like, sitting on the couch and, you know, not losing any weight and not feeling good. And, and was ready to just kind of give up and, on this whole idea of, like, trying to eat healthy. And I thought, well, maybe I'll, what, I wonder what would happen if I got rid of, you know, all the animal products, got rid of the dairy and got rid of this processed food. I wonder if that would make any difference. And I did that. Uh, I didn't have any expectation that that would make any difference, really. I thought, you know, this will, I'll do this and then I can honestly go back to eating the way that I was and say that I tried everything. Right. But I stepped into that and, and then within like seven to ten days of making that switch, I felt like I felt when I did that cleanse, like I felt amazing. And so it's been, it's been a process of, of, of building on that ever since. So yeah, it's been, I've been completely plant-based for about seven years, over seven years now. And, and so, and you ultimately, um, so are you, you're not practicing law at all anymore? No, I stopped practicing when my book came out. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in the, in the wake of kind of changing my diet and having all this energy, like, that's when I started, like, trying to get fit again. Not because I had, like, I had no plan of returning to becoming a competitive athlete. That was never part right. of the equation. It was just, I had so much energy, I needed to burn it off because I couldn't sit down, I couldn't focus. And I just wanted to lose a little bit of weight and enjoy my kids at their energy level, and that was really it. But the right. more I did it... The more I realized I had this this capacity for it, and the more I enjoyed it, and I just enjoyed 
feeling my body again after right. so many years, like connecting with myself and being out in nature. And there was something very primal about it. And it was also like very much an active meditation for me. Right. And, uh, and really kind of one thing led to another and, you know, sort of, you know, I, I started, <laughs> I, 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 what happened was really that, that this idea of how resilient the human body, I couldn't shake this idea. And I thought, well, if I could feel this good, like how I wanted to test that, like right. how, if I'm, if I could feel this good so quickly, what actually am I capable of physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? And I needed a challenge to test that, you know, to right. really like see where I could go with it. Um, and that's how the Ultraman thing kind of transpired. It wasn't like, I'm going to go beat a bunch of people on a race. It was like, I wanted to have a spiritual experience. I wanted to see what I was actually, what my, my physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental limitations were. And that seemed to be the ultimate thing because it was so incomprehensible. Right. So you what know, role does spirituality play in this? It, it's, it's all spiritual. Right. For me, I mean, it's much more spiritual than it is athletic, you know, and the whole reason that it, ins that it inspired me to get involved in it was to learn something about myself, you know, develop a greater understanding of what makes me tick. And I think when, you, when you're in that, that, this kind of an endeavor that's so challenging physically that it really makes you, it's sort of like when you're in recovery, like you don't really feel figure out what your character defects are until you're in a relationship, right? Right. You know, because it brings enough, it out. Well, or, until or, enough time passes that right, you exactly. can't ignore it. Right, right. And, but this was a way of really kind of confronting a lot about myself because you're in so much pain or you're, you know, you're forced to kind of you're, make choices about, you know, what you can tolerate and what you can't, that it really, the more I did it, the more I was learning about myself. And it's been really just that and the editor uh, this is a very sloppy transition it's <laughs> no. not where my skills have we filled up lies. the memory card you just, we did so much to say yeah. um, but but so we were sort of we were we were working towards the you know current to current day basically right. we were getting current as right. they say yeah what were we talking about you know it, it was very profound and very uh -huh. meaningful that part I know but the specifics I don't recall um, but basically um, I, I, I will here. Let's talk about. Okay, I, here's what I want to do, and maybe in doing that, we'll we'll get back to it somehow. Um, in order to uh, stay sober today, what do you do? Still very active in uh, my recovery, and I would say that. Um, I mean, first and foremost, you know, uh, I'm, I'm by no means any kind of shining example of sobriety or yeah, recovery you join know, the club i stumble and i make mistakes all the time right and i don't do it perfectly and uh and it's been hard you know it's been hard it's, it's been hard and it's weird to have written a book where there's like a recovery story because then it, sort of implicit in that is this idea that you you've conquered it you know and this is in your past and and that's not the case and that's not how i perceive it it requires a, a lot of work for me to um, be on top of it and you know, I have this persistent illusion that that um, I can be on cruise control. You know, yeah. Or, and it was, you and millions of other yeah, alcoholics. It, it, uh, you know, it was it was made very clear to me <clears throat> very early in sobriety that there is no stasis. You're either moving towards a relapse or you're moving towards you know greater health and recovery. 
and there's no standstill. Right. But I continue to try to convince myself yeah, that, that I can Yeah, that it'll cruise. be different. Or that what, you just forget. And so my experience has been, you know, I cruise until I'm in enough pain. And yeah. And then I address that. Shift gears. And then I take my will back and try to run my own life myself. Right. Until that stops working again. Um, you know, I've never lost touch with the program. I continue to be, you know, my life is, is about that, you know. and But it's it would be dishonest to say that I wake up every day and every single day that uh, I put sobriety first, you know, that's, you know, when I do, my life is better. And, but more often than not, I'm putting other things ahead of that until that causes problems in my life. And I have to remember because I forget. Right. Right. I mean, I, I, I definitely relate to that. And I think what's interesting is you can be telling yourself you're putting it first and doing 12 step and sharing and sponsoring, doing Mm. all of these things and still not be doing it at all. Right. You know, and, and the other thing is I think in terms of putting oneself out there, I I do think, you know, cause I worry about that too. Like in, I, I just hope with all the, like for me, like all the fucked up stuff I write, like at least people understand that like I'm the furthest thing from claiming I got this. Right. Like, you know, most sober people who are talking about it are not saying like, oh, look at me, do it like I did. Mm -hmm. We're just saying you you can do, this is possible. Right. You may be more of a mess than me. You may not be nearly as much of a mess as me, but, but, you know, I think it, I think it's hard because, um, you know, I think you have to work really hard to make it really clear that you're not holding yourself up as some example. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, people, out there they want to look at somebody as an example of somebody who has succeeded so they can hold on to that as like a lifeline and i recognize that you know sort of you know you probably fill that role for a lot of people and from time to time i, I do but it's God like not. i don't I you mean, know <laughs> this is like you know we have good days and bad days yeah and, yeah but i think that um I think it, it's really, really hard because, you know, you sort of get sober and you're like, yes, surrender, drugs, alcohol. And, and many of us have this extremely profound experience of having that desire removed. And then for me, it was like, and then suddenly all, all these jobs I kept getting fired from, suddenly like the world seemed to be saying yes to me. And, oh, you really think I'm going to surrender that? Are you mm-hmm. kidding me? Right. And, you know, sobriety has been learning that I, that I actually, the more I think I can control, the more miserable I'm going to be. Right. The road gets narrower and certain, you know, behavior patterns and habits and proclivities become, as you continue to grow and kind of live your life, hopefully become less and less acceptable to you until you have to sort of confront them and weed them out of your existence. And, you know, uh, but I'm very in touch every single day. Um, with the fact that the life that I live today, this amazing life that I've been blessed with, is really only because uh, I got sober and uh, and work on my sobriety every single day in some form or another. Right, right. And, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the recent news of, um, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, we learned he overdosed, mm-hmm. you know, this is that same week. I'm releasing it later, but right. not much. It was a couple of um, days ago. Yeah. And, um, you know, that news hit people really hard, you know, most of whom didn't know him. And, and the media sort of had its spin. I, I thought the media, I was impressed with many, many of the pieces that I read. Right. Um, but we were talking a little bit during the break. You didn't, you, were, were you, uh, how, what was your reaction to the response? I was, uh, 
I was deeply moved by it and very aggrieved. And, you know, Philip, I was not friends with Philip. I had the a good occasion to have met him on several occasions, but I wouldn't even say that we were that acquainted. Um, but I'm close with his mom and, uh, and, um, and know his family uh, more than I know him. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it really, it, it deeply, deeply affected me um, to the point where, I mean, I'm somebody who sometimes I feel like Dexter, you know, who's like peering in on, on two people having a, an authentic, intimate uh, interaction and trying and confused, right. trying to trying to figure out what a normal person I've never would seen do. It. Or, that, or, that, is that like well, he's kind he of like them? this emotionally numbed out person, right? You know, right. In oh addition to being a psychopath, <laughs> but like oh my God. the point being, like I don't. I often flog myself and feel guilty and 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 frankly, like ashamed that I don't like when some when some tragedy occurs, I don't feel that emotional about it. Right. Like more often than not, I'm numbed out. Right. You know, and I just I feel callous or. Right. And then I feel guilty that I don't feel right. like a normal person is supposed to feel. Exactly. I relate to That's that. my general uh, experience. But in this case, I really, I was like, I had an emotional breakdown. And, uh, and I was like, it's weird because it's not like we, I was friends with Phil. Um, but for other reasons and other people that are involved that I, that, you know, I feel compassion for, mm. um, it, it definitely affected me deeply. And, and, it's been interesting um, because it, it's not like a TMZ thing. This is a CNN thing. This is an everybody thing. This right. is a you know New York Times thing. You know, I don't. Did you see? A. O. Scott wrote a beautiful mm-hmm. eulogy in the New York Times about him, and I, I was so moved by reading that. And it's so heightened because of his extraordinary talent. other planetary talent yeah. that it, it becomes all the more poignant. And I think that um, what's been amazing to watch is the public's reaction to this because it's certainly, you know, it's water cooler talk across the world. Um, And I have this uh, expectation that normal people will see it the way that I see it or the way that you see it, you know, because we're immersed in recovery. We have a certain perspective on what transpired and, and what led to that happening. And then to realize that a lot of people are in a different place with that emotionally or have judgments about it that couldn't be further or, or, or more distinct from the way that I see it. But this can't be the first time you've noticed that the world doesn't seem to understand addiction very well. No, but I think I can't remember a time where it was so much, uh, kind of, you know, the trending discourse, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like there's been other celebrity, you know, like overdoses, of course, but because he was so universally revered and, and kind of, above reproach right. in every respect. Right. It's different it's colored differently, yeah. I think. It's framed differently. And and then when I see somebody say, Well he he made a choice, you know, and he, he was selfish and he left his kids behind and it's frustrating and it's upsetting to see that there's a lot of work to be done in terms of raising awareness over um, you know, how addiction actually functions. Right, right. But even so, it's not like sober people or people who are afflicted with addiction go, oh, okay, I get exactly what happened. This is what happened. Mm-hmm. We don't really know. No, we don't know. You know? Not. And it didn't happen it didn't happen in a glimpse either. It was something that I, I you know, I feel from an outsider's perspective had been building for a long time and culminated in this event. Right. Um <clears throat> You know, these things don't happen in a vacuum. And 
and it leaves you with a sense of powerlessness you know that that if somebody who had so much could be taken in this way that you know none of us are immune and I think it's imperative for everybody to understand that that it, it transcends choice you know when that locomotive has garnered enough steam over the last year or several months or even weeks or days by the time that choice presents itself that choice has already been made there's, right. a, there's a powerlessness to that it, it becomes incapable um, to course correct. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I, my fear, my, you know, I just don't know that people who have not experienced that firsthand even can even fathom it. Cause mm-hmm. they're like, what do you mean? It's over 23 years. What, you know, clearly it's not a problem, you know? Right. And, and it is, it is something that in my experience defies logic, which is how I sort of had my spiritual experience is this doesn't actually logically make sense that you can right. stop doing something. And this thing you could not stop suddenly ceases to be even an issue. Right. Or this idea that once you've accumulated time, you've somehow immunized yourself right. from this kind of event transpiring. Right, right, right. Um, well, Rich, I think on that, you know, sobering note, mm-hmm. you know, I think this I think we've had a good a good chat. It's a good, yeah. Right? Good. I've enjoyed it. Have you right. have you enjoyed it? I have. Can- Are you gonna come on my podcast now? I, but don't you only talk about like like super healthy things? No. Oh my god. Okay. Well, listen to my, listen to the Mishka I episodes. Okay, I would I would. Just love... when we took the break, I just said he he texted me. So there's a the, the bromance seren- serendipitous, is alive. Well, is it serendipitous or are you guys just texting twenty four seven? No, no. I mean every couple days, you know. So like the fact that he would text while I'm sitting here. With I want to be. Can up, we make so. it a triumvirate? Do you think that if I take up like athletics in a serious way and I start trying to bro out with you guys, the three of us can no okay yeah, okay yeah. look i'll start Whatever with just want. going on your podcast that's yeah. that's good enough for me actually it'd be pretty fun to have the three of us do it together if we can get all in the same room somehow let's make it happen so, okay rich right. thank you so much for all doing right. this it Thanks really is an me. honor and pleasure cool. i didn't lie right he was good rich roll one of the world's fittest men sober alcoholic thoughtful best-selling author um fellow podcaster check him out richroll.com you can follow him on twitter uh and uh at at rich roll it's r-o-l-l lest you think it's r-o-l-e and um and if you google him you will you will see you'll you'll be brought to new levels of what you think fitness uh can be so see you next time after partiers